Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this edition, we'll feature predicting tsunamis, cricket psychology, and are you allergic to sex? Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Marianne Menictus is a final year student in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of Technology, Sydney. She's been researching tsunami warning systems. What is a tsunami? Well, we do hear the word tsunami quite often, but a tsunami is actually a series of water waves. It can basically just look like the biggest wave you've ever seen times 10. And it it looks like a a wall of water approaching a shoreline. Generally, a tsunami is caused by any movement under the seabed. So if there's tectonic plate movement, it causes energy to come out into the water. And once this energy has come out, it tends to move. And as this energy moves, it causes a series of waves and it just gets larger and larger as it approaches the shoreline and doesn't seem to stop. How do you predict tsunamis using statistics? Well, the title is Finding the Optimal Locations for Tsunami Warning Boys and Sea Level Monitoring Stations in the Mediterranean. When you say finding optimal locations, Mm -hmm. do you actually mean finding the best places to put them? Yeah. So say we uh, put a tsunami warning buoy or a monitoring station in a particular area and then we find out that the warning potential for the population might be a bit low and we'd want to achieve a much higher warning potential. So we try to find the optimal locations that would sort of give us a higher value of people getting warned and eventually getting rescued. So... So you're sort of maximising the number of people you can help with the amount of money that you have to spend? Yes. What's the system at the moment for tsunamis? Well, there's no actual tsunami warning system in place in the Mediterranean region at the moment. So that's one of the big reasons why we felt as though we should research on the Mediterranean region. So at the moment, there are a few tsunami warning buoys, but we aim to try and put a few more out there so that more people can receive a warning if there were ever to be a tsunami. What are the costs of this that you have to limit? Well, there's various costs. Some are the costs of buying tsunami warning buoys and some costs are replacing and repairing tsunami warning buoys that have been destroyed. So either by pirates or by the waves, if they were too rough, they could have ruined any parts of it. And that plays a role in the availability 
So if we're given a certain cost to buy tsunami warning buoys and we can only buy five, we'll try and maximise the optimal locations so that we can place them in an area where it would maximise the warning potential for the coastal regions. Right. About how much do the individual buoys cost? Well, on average, they can cost about $300,000. Right. So you really, really you know, don't want to lose them. No, we don't. <laughs> right. So that, that's part of the constraints of all this. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And I guess so the way you've looked at this is that it almost doesn't matter what they tell you the budget is. You can put this into what you've worked yeah, out. Yeah, we can put it into a mathematical model. So no matter what the constraints are, we can always work out an optimal solution given certain constraints. One of the major constraints that we had was uh, the tsunami travel time. So there's three tsunami travel times that we were focusing on in particular. There's a tsunami travel time from the generation point to the population centre. There's a tsunami travel time to the detection device, so a tsunami warning buoy, for instance. And also there's a travel time from the detector to the population, as well as the reaction time of the population. So what we aim to do with our constraint is to make sure that the time taken for the population to react effectively has to be less than the time it takes for the tsunami to reach the population so that uh, ideally no one is hurt. How do the buoys detect the tsunamis? A buoy station has two parts. The first part is the buoy that's on the water, so it floats up and down as the waves move. And the second part is connected to the buoy on the bottom of the sea floor. And this is a pressure detector. So as the water moves and adds pressure, the pressure detector will record the data. And then the data is then transferred to the warning buoy. And then the buoy sends this off to a satellite. And then the satellite sends it off to a warning centre. And then it's up to the warning centre to decide if this is dangerous enough to ever cause a tsunami. Let's say they get the signal. So somebody at the centre has to decide whether or not they're going to evacuate the whole population of yes. the area in danger. Mainly because evacuations are very expensive. They can cost up to $70 million. So you wouldn't want an evacuation to occur if a tsunami wasn't to hit. So what is DART? Firstly, DART stands for Deep Ocean Assessment and Reporting of Tsunamis Boy. And the DART boy, as explained before, has the two parts and helps the warning centre decide if a tsunami is approaching. So how far back do the records go for Mediterranean tsunamis? Well, the records can go as far back as the 1600s BC and there have been some of the world's most destructive earthquakes and tsunamis in the Mediterranean region. What inspired you to write this paper as opposed to some other area of research? Mainly because the Mediterranean region is very tsunamigenic prone and also it doesn't have a current tsunami warning system in place. So I really felt as though I had to speak up about this issue, along with the class as well. How does your model help? Well, ideally it would help put the implementation plan at the moment into action. It could also help in um, helping people understand the issues in the Mediterranean and um, maybe even if current students would like to research a similar topic, even to use the paper as a reference. Have you been published? Yes, I have along with the rest of the class. And it's, it's a really good feeling, especially in my second year of uni. I didn't think I'd, I'd have a publication, so it's very exciting. And which journal did you publish in? We published in the Journal of Tsunami Society International, and they specialise in the science of tsunami hazards. That's got to be really exciting. 
So now that you've got a publication and research, you know, published, you've contributed to science, what's next? Are you going to go on to further research? I am. I'm very excited about next year. I'm doing my honours thesis and I'm focusing more in statistical modelling than anything else. So that sounds very exciting. Do you think after you've finished your honours that you'd go on to a PhD? I'd really love to because I think I'd understand the world of research a bit better and it would help in aiding me to really understand a more detailed topic as opposed to a broader view of things. So I would really love to do that. And you're going to be looking at randomised responses? We're going to be concentrating in statistics and the topic is randomised response. So what we'll be doing is we'll be focusing on sensitive questions and trying to find information about that. So sensitive questions may include, have you taken drugs in the past six months? Have you cheated in your HSC exam? So these are questions that people usually would not want to be truthful about. If you were to try and explain to listeners how you develop a model from all those inputs of all the costs and the locations and the population and the timing of the tsunamis and the distances, how do you go about putting all that together? Well, that was a bit of the tricky part to the paper. So first we've got all this bunch of information everywhere and we've got to sort of try and put it all together to find an answer. So we've got to make sure that we're asking the right question. And so our aim was to find optimal locations. So that would include many constraints and we had cost constraints, availability constraints and various others. So what we'd do is we'd have our objective function, which would be the optimal locations. And then under that, we'd have our constraints. And through, we used Excel spreadsheets. We used formulas to find out the answers to the locations, uh, latitudes, longitudes, population sizes. So you've put all this information into the spreadsheet. So after that, we just played around with different formulas and tried to find what locations work best for what warning potentials for the coastal populations. And then after we played around with it a bit and we then found our optimal locations and basically that's it. So after we found that, that, that's the solution that we needed. So with all these different constraints for tsunami prediction that you've put into your model, what does it come up to in the end for how fast a response you need to get for people to be able to make the decision and to actually evacuate the people before they get smashed by a giant tsunami? How fast do they go? Generally they go about 800 kilometres an hour. How quick a time do people have to decide from this information? Well, ideally it would be zero minutes, but of course we can't get that. So an approximate response time would be about 30 minutes. So they gave us warning potentials of about 94%, which was pretty high. So we were happy with that when we we got that result. So when you say 94%, you mean 94% of people would be saved? That's right. Would would be effectively warned. That's fantastic. It is. And how fast are these waves? Um, About 800 kilometres an hour. So basically your model and your system is outracing an 800 kilometre tidal wave to save lives. It certainly is. Great work. Thank you. Mathematics can save lives. Marianne Menictus has just finished her degree in mathematics and statistics. She's 20 years old and is looking forward to doing new research in her honours year at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, here's a classic clip of Matt Clark reporting on semen allergies in 2006, 
followed by a 2006 cricket psychology by Mark West, introduced by the now famous Tilly Berlin. We've all heard the age-old Navy saying that women and seamen don't mix. Well, it turns out there's a fair bit of truth in it. A recent US study performed on over 1,000 women has shown that possibly 13% of the fairer sex are allergic to their partner's semen. The culprit is not the sperm inside the semen, but the proteins which make up a large part of it. So far, there have been no reported deaths, although a number of cases requiring hospitalisation have been recorded. Typical symptoms are difficulty breathing, swell. The culprit is not the sperm inside the semen, but the proteins which make up a large part of it. So far, there have been no reported deaths, although a number of cases requiring hospitalisation have been recorded. Typical symptoms are difficulty breathing, swelling, itching and burning. Some of these are also symptomatic of a number of sexually transmitted diseases, which may lead to misdiagnosis or, for some embarrassed women, not reporting it at all. For the men inflicting their allergen-loaded semen on their partners, there is some good news, though. In a typically male answer to the problem, the most effective treatment involves more sex. And lots of it. Although, you have to be careful what you wish for. Dr David Resnick, who performed the study, says that they've had one case where the amount of sex required was too much for one poor husband to keep up with, and his wife developed the allergy again. And now for the news that didn't make the news. Mark, have you got something to say? Yes, thanks Tilly. Here are some cultural learnings to make benefit the glorious nation of diffusion. And with the ashes starting very soon, I thought we'd talk a little bit about cricket and psychology. Bring it on. Excellent. The best batsman in the world, apparently, can predict the sort of ball a bowler is going to deliver before it even leaves his hands, a study of psychology shows. What, what, what they've found is that the best batsman can predict the way a bowler is going to bowl just from his run-up and from the way he's holding his hands and his general body language. So it's just similar to a poker player being able to uh, get a decent prediction on his opponent's hand by his facial expression and body movements, body yeah. language. V- v- yes, exactly right. Cool. This- How are they doing? Are they studying, are you, are they studying tapes of the, of well, the what, guy? Or? What they did, they put uh, participants, including Steve Waugh and Ricky Ponting, uh, the Australian captain, through a number of tests where they watched the bowler come in and on the video... They stopped it, and then from where the bowler was, they guessed where they were going to bowl. And more often than not, they got it correct. Now, I might be showing my age here, but uh, Max Walker, if anyone remembers his run-up, I mean, you'd be completely stuffed trying to work out what he was doing. I remember Max's run-up. There was a kind of a long lope, like a Mm. sort of a drunken gibbon. (laughs) (laughs) If I remember, correct me if I'm wrong here, but yeah, no, Maxie had a bit of a yee-whoa-over-the-shoulder type uh, action. He did. He bowled off the wrong foot as well, I seem uh-huh, to remember. Okay. And he had a good moustache, which Darren is sporting today. He's looking very Max Walker, actually. And you're looking very fine too, Mark. It's, I, I've it... heard uh, John Holm, I think I will, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> so uh, let's, let's... Mark doesn't know who John Holmes is, folks, and which is probably a good thing. But Sorry, Mark. Go on. 
back to the body language <laughs> and not of the John Holmes site uh, kind. Apparently, this is a good way uh, of getting batsmen back into form as well. When they're out of form, they lose this ability or their ability to read the body language is, is lessened. Do you think um, uh, that uh, Ponting would have been such a good choice given that Ponting's regarded, I think, along with Lara, one of the best batsmen in the world, and if anyone could, could predict how a ball is going to end up, it would be him? Surely <laughs> if anyone had that ability, Bradman did, but you, know, you can't go back there, can you? Well, it's, uh, it's amazing. Bradman, many current experts these days think Bradman's technique wasn't all that good. And this is Diffusion Sports Show. Um, whilst we're discussing all this, but yeah, apparently technically his his um, his technique was not that great. Mm, so okay. maybe he had this ability. Yeah, well, I suppose if you don't need the, the 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 greatest technique if you know what's going to come. You don't yeah, have to uh... exactly. Was the research done on just fast bowlers, or was it done on spin bowling as well? It looks like it was just done on fast bowlers, but uh, spin bowling would bring a it's a totally different scenario. You'd have to not only be reading the body language, but reading the the wrist, the position of the ball, the yeah, position I'd, of I'd the hand. And, and, of course, the thumb position of Shane Warne. I'd defy and anyone to try and to apply that to, to Warne at all. Forget about it. I wouldn't. I don't think it'd even come close. I think that could really only work for, for pace or medium bowlers. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the swing of a cricket ball, reverse swing, can you predict that? Well, So yeah. that's an interesting physics thing with boundary conditions, and I'm sure we'll talk about that at some other stage when the producer's not giving us the massive wind-up. On Friday, 10th of December, I was a judge in the Consensus Green Tech Awards. The Green Tech Awards recognise the contribution made by Australian and New Zealand organisations in the development and commercialisation of environmentally friendly or green technologies. The Green Tech Awards are supported by the Australian Federal Government, Oz Industry, Oz Trade, New Zealand Trade Enterprise, the Australian Computer Society, and Connection Research. There were 10 judges this year, and the 2010 winners were Powerminder from Integrated Research. Powerminder is a system for switching off PCs in an office or an entire building. There's been a problem with employees who are asked to turn their computers off to save power and to save costs, but it's inconvenient. They either forget or they haven't closed their files. And basically, when they get in first thing in the morning, it's a big hassle to wait through the entire login procedure and boot up before they want to get to work. So a lot of people don't do it. The solution of Powerminder is that the network administrator does it for them. They get software from integrated research. It's on their main server and it remotely shuts down all the PCs and puts them in a suspended state so the files aren't lost, thus saving lots of electricity and helping the environment and the bottom line. They ultimately plan on putting this into the cloud, which means it'd be a web-based server on an outside website rather than inside your enterprise. I was a little concerned about how this might work with future versions of Windows and whether or not someone could exploit this for a security hole, but overall, they're trying to help businesses save money without being without inconveniencing their employees. The other winner was Solar Lighting from Barefoot Power. Barefoot's main innovation was its business innovation. They're trying to replace the kerosene consumption in the third world that's used for lighting with solar panels and super bright LEDs. But the problem is, of course, that these are very poor people, so you need very cheap systems. So what they've set up is a business in a bag. Instead of loaning money to people in the third world to buy the equipment, 
What they've done instead is they loan the equipment to what they call micro-entrepreneurs, local people who want to sell the equipment and better themselves. And after six weeks, these people have made enough profit that they can pay back the costs of the original equipment and buy more to keep on selling. As a result, they're able to spread this out to people who would otherwise be completely reliant on kerosene, which is not bright enough to read at night, and which lets people stay up and read, lets them study, and lets them be free from toxic fumes that would otherwise come from the kerosene and all the other dangers of just burning kerosene indoors. Highly commended was the 2C light cap from the 2C light company. This is basically a baseball cap that can also be configured in all sorts of other sort of caps that on its brim has a completely sealed waterproof solar cell and rechargeable battery that is hooked in to super bright LEDs so that when you're wearing the hat during the day, it's absorbing all the sun. And at night, when it gets dark, if you're out hiking or you're camping, or you've been at school and you want to read after dark, then there's these super bright LEDs right where you need them. So either they can light the way so you don't trip over things in the dark, or they can light the way so you can read at night. These are more expensive than perhaps the barefoot power, but it's in a hat. And it's waterproof, and it's portable, and you don't have to do anything more. I think every school child should have one of these built into their school uniform hat, or just as a hat. Apparently during the New Zealand earthquakes, lots of people who had the solar caps were able to find their way out of the rubble, because it occurred in the middle of the night, because they had their solar caps by the bedside. The solar caps also have a clever idea for these sort of emergencies. It's got a built-in SOS signal. So if you double-click the button that you would normally use to switch it on and off, it starts flashing an SOS. So that if it's the middle of the night and it's an earthquake, people can find you and know you're in trouble. Also highly commended was the WeWo from One Water Naturally. The WeWo is a smart, extendable water management system that guarantees a water supply from multiple sources. Instead of producing the hydraulics in brass as is traditional, they've used composite plastic. It's a scalable system that you can keep on adding to. You can upgrade it. It's got its intelligence built in. It's got little microcontrollers. And basically it can prevent flooding by switching off the water if there's excess water. It can use grey water and switch that right next to clean water without them being mixed so that you can use rainwater, you can recycle water, you can basically save water water and not have to use drinkable water for absolutely everything. The consensus award programs are based on an open nomination process. Nominations are welcomed from individuals and organisations with technologies that meet the judging criteria. The awards exist to reward excellence in Australian and New Zealand green technology and to grow and strengthen Australian and New Zealand's contribution to sustainability in society. Award recognition can be vital in building the credibility and exposure necessary for locally developed technology to break into new markets. If you've got a Green Tech Award, people will buy your product. The Green Tech Awards have been developed to provide this credibility by using an open and transparent judging process based on the consensus model. To achieve a consensus Green Tech Award, the technology must be Australian or New Zealand designed and developed and be judged by the invited panel of judges to be innovative, deliver performance benefits to the user and have further potential for product or market development. Entrants are invited to present the evidence to the judging panel first through a written and then by a direct presentation. Since each product is assessed directly against the judging criteria, there are no categories and the judges may recommend as many or few awards as they deem to be worthy each year. 
was a very interesting and educational process to be part of. You can look for the Green Tech Awards online at www.consensus.com.au. Next up, Juice Media Rap News with Robert Foster. Through mirror reflection, will Cablegate change the game or lead to repression? We get face to face with Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton, how does it feel to get leaked on? It's scandalous. This is a case of high treason. It's against the land of the brave and divine freedom. We're the good guys for democracy. We fight evil and we've waged peace around the world. Proud of the flag. These leaks could devalue this powerful brand. Bring military operations straight to a halt. Our shareholders, clients and partners would plainly revolt. But aren't you beholden to the American public? And isn't the US one of the primary culprits in overthrowing governments such as Chile, Iran, Nicaragua? Please, stop with the drama. The American people are our employees, whose taxes fund the wars that support our schemes. Their kids become troops we send overseas in return for mega malls in the American dream. And if our client states don't like the things that we do, we install a dictator with a CIA coup. In foreign relations, subversion is the method we use. WikiLeaks threatens the system so it's a terrorist group but people of the world seem to generally approve of wikileaks actions in spreading the truth they do well then they're terrorists too dissenters are traitors as history proves and they always lose that's curious weren't some of our greatest heroes persecuted for this reason here mandela gandhi jesus <laughs> You idealists. Oh, We're one happy family tree, son, as you'll see soon when we hang a sand for treason. Treason? Could an Australian ever stand trial? Ha! <laughs> Australia's in the American Empire. We have puppet states, franchisees, subsidiaries, provided they obey their guaranteed liberty. We're not letting a sand get out of our grip. You know how hard it was to plant a condom that split? And that's all from us, this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were... We're Matt Clark and Mark West. I've produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Good morning. This is a Juice News call-out in the wake of Cablegate and the subsequent fallout. Bulls out revelations, observations of diplomats, giving actual confirmation of hidden facts. Spilling backroom deals, leaking leaders' chit-chat, money laundering and tit-for-tat. Spits and spats, the picture that emerges, provided by the service, shines light further behind the wire curtain. Certainly, this is divided views of the populace. Some say it's obvious, nothing new in these documents. Others say it's ominous and applaud the revelations. Others still call for the messengers assassination. Following Assange's arrest and calls for his head, over 9,000 counterattacks on all of the web. The State Department being forced to defend, spying at the UN and a secret war in Yemen. Despite DDoS attacks on WikiLeaks system, day by day cables still spray through mirror reflection. Will Cablegate change the game or lead to repression?